1: I'm Zach Young, producer of Deconstructed. By now, you've probably heard the news. Breaking news about the United States Supreme Court. Breaking news. Just breaking in the last few breaking minutes. Breaking news is coming out of the Supreme Court tonight. We have huge breaking news tonight, and I can't even believe I'm gonna tell you what I'm about to tell you. A leaked memo appears to show that Roe v. Wade is done. Political reporting that it has seen a leaked court draft from February. A highly, indeed, as far as I can tell, utterly unprecedented leak that indicates the Supreme Court would overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade case. The draft opinion is a full-throated, unflinching repudiation of the 1973 decision, which guaranteed federal constitutional protections of abortion rights. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, Alito writes. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. He writes in the document labeled as the opinion of the court. Again, I'm reading from the political article. It is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. There are at least five votes for that, including all three of President... Trump's appointees to the court. The leak, though, itself here is historic, and the fallout from this report will run deep on many levels. This would be, if true, the most seismic court ruling in 50 years, most likely. If overturned, as this leaked draft indicates, it would be up to states to decide whether to restrict or ban abortion. It's important to emphasize that while this appears to be a genuine draft opinion, draft opinions do change, sometimes substantially. So this does not mean that the court is necessarily going to strike down Roe, but it does make that outcome look very likely. We figured this would be a good time to rebroadcast our interview with Elise Hoag from October of 2020. Brian Grimm spoke with her about what Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation to the court, which was brand new at the time, meant for Roe v. Wade. So we now present that interview to you again. We think it's still very relevant listening in light of tonight's news. In the interview, you'll hear Elise referred to as the president of NARAL Pro-Choice. She stepped down from that position in 2021.
2: I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. We're less than 18 days away from the election, and Senate Republicans have spent the past week pushing Amy Coney Barrett through the Judiciary Committee. Anger at the audacity of Republicans for moving so quickly to fill RBG's seat, even as people are already voting for the next president, has triggered a historic flood of small dollars to Joe Biden and Senate Democratic candidates. Here's South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham My opponent will raise almost $100 million. I'm being killed financially. This money is because they hate my guts. And it's giving Democrats the higher ground in those races. Here's Lindsey Graham's opponent, Jamie Harrison, in their recent debate.
1: Your words, your promise was that no uh, judicial nominee should be uh, considered or approved or what have you in the last year of an election. And you even named President Trump when you said it. Just be a man of it and stand up and say, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm going to do something else. But don't go back and blame it on somebody else for something, a flip-flop that you're making yourself.
2: In the third quarter, Harrison raised a stupefying $57 million. And Graham, chairman of the Judiciary Committee, clearly thought this would be a way to even the score. Here he is in a Senate office building this week. Bear in mind when listening that soliciting campaign cash inside a federal building is a crime.
3: I think people in South Carolina are excited about Judge Barrett. I don't don't know uh, how much it affected fundraising today,
1: but if you want to help me close the gap, LindseyGraham.com, a little bit goes a long way. For
2: their part, Democrats made the confirmation hearings about the Affordable Care Act. But if the court does strike down the ACA in the upcoming case, Democrats can fix it with a one-line piece of legislation if they control Congress and the White House next year. Still... It was clearly smart short-term politics and has Republican incumbents scrambling to promise they'll protect people with pre-existing conditions and on and on. Roe v. Wade, however, not so safe. Listen to what Barrett told Graham about whether she could ever see Brown v. Board of Education being overturned.
1: One of the reasons you can say with confidence that you think Brown v. Board of Education is super precedent is that you're not aware of any effort to go back to the good old days of segregation by a legislative body. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. And I've also said in lectures that Brown was correct as an original matter. So that
0: is the kind of thing, since I've said it in writing, I felt like I could express before the committee.
2: Graham also has a piece of legislation that would ban abortion after 20 weeks. Listen to what she said when he asked about that.
1: So that Roe v. Wade compared to Brown versus Board of Education is not super president?
3: Um, Not super president, as I was using that
0: term in the articles that have been referred to.
2: If ACB is confirmed, opponents of Roe would have five votes to overturn it. Maybe they'll blink, or maybe Democrats will make sure there are six votes to uphold it by expanding the court. But either way, the fight isn't over. It's not often that politicians talk openly about the forces that are driving the agenda. To understand that, we need to go back to the 1970s, when radical Republican operatives figured out how to link the interests of big business with the grassroots energy of the evangelical vote by manufacturing concern about the issue of abortion, which had been non-controversial even into the mid to late 1970s. That project has now grown extraordinarily sophisticated and well-funded, as Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse laid out during the hearing.
1: Pretty big deal. I've never seen this around any court that I've ever been involved with, where there's this much dark money and this much influence being used. Here's how the Washington Post summed it up. This is a conservative activist behind-the-scenes campaign to remake the nation's courts, and it's a $250 million dark money operation. $250 million is a lot of money to spend if you're not getting anything for it. The Republican Party platform tells us to look at how they want judges to rule, to reverse Roe, to reverse the Obamacare cases, and to reverse Obergefell and take away gay marriage. That is their stated objective and plan. Why not take them at their word?
2: That Amy Coney Barrett is on the brink of the Supreme Court is the culmination of that strategy. We're joined now by Elise Hoag president of NARAL Pro-Choice America and author of the new book, The Lie That Binds. Elise, welcome to Deconstructed.
0: Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here.
2: And I wanted to start with, with Mike Leakes. He, he made some news this week with a kind of startling assertion on Twitter, and it was a point that he kind of elaborated on during the confirmation hearings. And On Twitter, he wrote, uh, quote, Democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish. Rank democracy can thwart that. Now, that sentiment sounded like awfully familiar to me after reading your book. One one of the founders of the Christian conservative movement, Paul Weyrich, said this at a 1980 convention where Reagan and Jerry Falwell also spoke.
1: Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote elections are not won by a majority of people they never have been from the beginning of our country and they are not now as a matter of fact our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down
2: and so so elise who was paul wayrick and and what's the link to people like mike lee
0: paul wayrick is the most influential person on the right wing that most people have never heard of. He was sort of the cornerstone that started the new radical right, funded so much infrastructure that dominates the landscape today, including heritage, including Federalist Society. Um, And he uh, called himself a dominionist. He straight up said he believed God gave white Christian men dominion over all systems of power, certainly including the family, but including economic systems, social systems, and political systems. And you have to remember, he was living and working to build this infrastructure in the late '60s and early '70s, when the country was in the throes of change. Um, you know, the civil rights movement had become mainstream. Um, the Gay liberation movement was underway, women's lib, black power. And he essentially said, in order to maintain uh, order, in order to maintain order in the society, sound familiar? (laughs) Um, We have got to assert tighter control over these systems. And that requires actually minority rule. So how do we do that? And I think the straight line between him and what Mike Lee uh, said this week is not just the shared philosophy that you've got a um, white male power structure that is intent on maintaining a status quo against people clamoring for change, but that, in fact, this is endgame for a strategy that Wyrick launched which did involve subverting democracy, certainly through suppressing the vote, certainly through disinformation and um, monopolization of the narrative, but absolutely through capturing the courts. And that strategy, which was initiated through the 70s and the 80s, is what we are living through endgame this week with these hearings.
2: And so you and others have talked about the way that that he linked up kind of big business interests and this, this nascent, you know, Christian right in order to create a, kind of an electoral front for, for the movement that you talked about to kind of defend the, the, the status quo. So, you know, Mike, Mike Lee is a part of that. Josh Hawley too is all, he's on the committee. He's another uh, religious conservative who, who talks a lot about right-wing populism and, and kind of reining in the, the monopoly power of big tech. Now, he went to the Senate floor recently after the Bostock decision. That was the, the Supreme Court decision that said that LGBT uh, protections apply in the workplace, essentially. He went to the Senate floor and just ripped into it and spoke more openly about the alliance that, that you've talked about than I've ever really seen in, in, in public, at least on the, on the Senate floor.
4: Now, this is a very significant decision, and it marks a turning point for every conservative. And it marks a turning point for the legal conservative movement. You know, the legal conservative project has always depended on one group of people in particular in order to carry the weight of the votes, to actually support this out in public, to to get out there and make it possible electorally. And those are religious conservatives. Now, I am one myself. Evangelicals, conservative Catholics, conservative Jews, they're the ones, let's be honest, they're the ones who have been the core of the legal conservative effort and and the reason for that is it dates back decades now back to the 1970s the reason for that is these religious conservatives from different backgrounds but what they have consistently sought together was protection for their right to worship for their right to freely exercise their faith as the first amendment guarantees for their right to gather in their communities for their right to pursue the way of life that their scriptures variously command and that the Constitution absolutely protects.
2: So, Elise, what's he saying there? And, and what does a speech like that say about where this alliance is headed?
0: I mean, it's really fascinating, isn't it? Because they were kind of trying to um, ha- have it all ways. You've got a, um, a founding infrastructure deeply committed to... Um, economic rule, which requires alliances with increasingly unaccountable corporations, but that doesn't lead to a lot of foot soldiers, right? <laughs> that, not a lot of corporate executives right. are going to be knocking doors <laughs> in the districts mm-hmm. and states that you need. So they created all of this narrative and infrastructure around exactly the constituencies that Josh Hawley lays out, right? Pretty um, extreme fundamentalists in in certain elements of religious society that previously had not been mobilized to politics generally, but if they had been, it had it had been around an entirely different set of issues, and um, they had been rolled into politics by actually the idea that they are being threatened, threatened by these changes in society. And um, to their way of life, their way of life. Right. And and arguably, that's true. And we think that's their way of life was not threatened. Right. But their way of life was threatened as being the only way of life that was acceptable in this society. And And right. those of us who stand for social progress and plurality and diversity think that is a positive thing. And and I think what Holly is speaking to is the fact that there were always that one sort of crack in the armor because a lot of these people are actually working people who do um, stand to lose from the very same aims of this movement when you look at the way that they have sided with um, corporate titans overworking people. And it's a very interesting thing. Now, where does that mean the movement is heading? I mean, I think we've seen that, right? Isn't Trump the manifestation of that Mm right-wing populism and his constant tension with the more establishment Republicans? And he makes them a little crazy. So I think that we are potentially headed for a very big rift in the GOP that has been sort of... Very fragilely bound together for the last forty years. and you know I think that would be a positive thing quite honestly. Right.
2: Now does Amy Coney Barrett make somebody like Josh Hawley happy finally? It seems like he's saying, look, you know we' we're, we're we're suffering in this alliance because you know our people are getting hurt by these corporate titans, but all, all we ask for is that our status quo be maintained yet it's not being. But if you get an Amy Coney Barrett, does he finally say, okay, fine, this this alliance was was worth it? Is that, is that kind of what the implication is here?
0: I mean, I think that they really do believe that the cementing of a right-wing majority, an unimpeachable supermajority, some would argue, on the court if, if they have a, a 6-3 um, ideological split, um, plus what she personally represents, which is— um, you know, this sort of perversion of what we believe the intention of religious liberty is, you know, we, we define religious freedom as like, I get to do what I want mm-hmm. beca- in my home because of my own religion. You aren't going to tell me not to do that. But I don't get to tell you, Ryan Graham, what you should do <laughs> because of my faith. Mm-hmm. They, on the GOP side, actually completely invert that. And say anytime time I don't get to tell you what to do because of my it offends my faith. That is, a, you know, that's religious persecution. And I think they see her as simpatico in that, right? I think that's why they're trying so hard to goad the Democrats into a fight over faith. Which you know, I, I will give them credit that they did not take the bait, right? And nor should they, mm-hmm. because this is a question of record decisions, ability to actually. Um, judge impartially, and she she has absolutely failed on all of those fronts, but they are trying so hard to make this a uh, a, a war over faith. And they've been wanting this war over faith for a long time, right? This goes v- fundamentally back to when they fought school desegregation in the late 60s, mm-hmm because they claimed that it violated their religion to have to integrate their schools. Their interpretation of their own religious faith and their own religious liberty is so tied up in control power and oppression of others that it is not actually an acceptable interpretation through the courts, through legislation, or any other mechanism to embrace that in a diverse and pluralistic society. And guess what? Whether they like it or not, that's what America is.
2: Elise, you've all, you've also talked a lot about the role of women in this particular movement. And so I want to finish up with, with Marsha Blackburn, who was kind of the cleanup hitter at the hearing. I'm going to play a little bit of what she said and get your take.
3: You don't fit into their elitist format. You're a girl from the South, from New Orleans. You went to school at Rhodes in Memphis. I don't know if my colleagues have ever been to Memphis or ever been to Rhodes, but you don't fit into their Harvard Ivy League group. You're not a part of the clique or the club, you came to DC, you clerked, but judge, you messed up. You went back to Notre Dame, and you chose to teach and to have a family. They don't want to admit you got where you got. You earned it, and that is why we are so honored to support you
2: What is Marsha Blackburn doing there?
0: It's so, I mean, begrudgingly, Ryan, you know how begrudgingly, (laughs) I actually thought she did an excellent job of what she was trying to do. Um, What Marsha Blackburn is saying over the backdrop of an entire American public who does not want this nominee rammed through, wants to actually be able to elect an ex-president and have that president um, fill this seat, What Marsha Blackburn is saying to a constituency that the GOP has been losing steadily for the last four years since Trump was elected, which is predominantly suburban white women, right? She's saying, you women have more in common with Amy Coney Barrett than you do with those coastal elites. They don't like you. They don't respect your way of life. And by them opposing this nominee, they are actually rejecting who you have chosen to be in the world. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. (laughs) This nominee is way too extreme for most of this constituency of voters. But what Marsha Blackburn is doing is relying on the allegiance of optics, the allegiance of... Um, I look like her, I sound like her, I'm a mom like her over an examination of what are quite fundamentally radical views that would put off the same constituency of voters. So Marsha Blackburn was sent out there to do a specific thing, which was to not just put a capstone on this illegitimate confirmation that they're pushing through, but actually to try and mitigate the damage that it will do with a constituency of voters that they very much need, not even just to hold the White House, which, you know, the gender gap is so big at this point, it's hard to believe. But she was saying, you know, even down ballot, even these Senate races, even these people sitting on this dais like Tom Tillis, like Lindsey Graham, who are on the ballot in 19 days, these people respect who you are. The other side does not. I mean, this is literally from the playbook of Ronald Reagan when he was absolutely hemorrhaging women because of his policies and his misogynistic tendencies um, in his first term. And they were like, what do we do? What do we do? And they were like, I know. Let's just name the first uh, woman Supreme Court justice. And they did was Sandra Day Mm O'Connor. And it saved them that time. I think it's a much higher hill. Um, to climb for this to win women voters back to Trump.
2: And re- Republicans are pushing such an unpopular agenda here. How is it that Democrats can't stop them? What are they doing wrong here?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental thing um, that they've done wrong is the Republicans have played the long game. I mean, we lay out in the book that this is the culmination of over 40 years of strategy, almost 50 years of strategy and the Republic uh, and the Democrats tend to treat each um, election cycle as though it's a new one <laughs> responding mm-hmm. to what's happening in the moment which I understand the allure of that and there is certainly a lot happening in this moment. Um, but you know we have we have not seen that same kind of long-term strategy in support of a aspirational vision and ideals on the Democratic side in some time. Um, and then I would argue that there is um, probably a well-intentioned, but misguided, misguided over reliance on the norms and practices that that sort of bind together a democracy. And I think that's that's true explicitly in the Senate, where we have a lot of institutionalists. You hear a lot of nostalgia for times gone by where you could work across the aisle, you know, and it's like, I'm so sorry that like that's those times are gone, but how much more evidence do you need that those times are gone, right? So, um, so every step of the way, I mean, you can't look at the Coney Barrett nomination without going back to 2016 and watching what they did to Merrick Garland and stopping him from even having a hearing, even though Scalia died and even though Obama nominated him 10 months before the election, right? And that was a high stakes gamble for McConnell at the time. It was such an abrogation of norms that they basically dared people to call them out and make them pay a huge political price for it. But they thought it was worth it because they understood the overarching strategy and how crucial this moment was to them in the long game. And they did it. And they won, and they weren't even punished for it, right? And so what do they do? Yeah. They go on to continue to break rules, and and I think that... Um, Democrats have, you know, Democrats want democracy to work. So I give them absolute points for for their feelings and, and their intentions there. But um, they have been <laughs> slow to recognize that it, this is just like asymmetrical warfare, where you have one side breaking the system to get minority rule and the other side trying to just play within a broken system in a way that's never going to allow them victory.
2: Well, Elise, uh, thanks so much for joining
0: us. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, And thanks for all you
2: do. That was Elise Hoag, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Elise Hoag's book, The Lie That Binds, was published by Strongarm Press, of which I'm a co-founder. If you'd like to support Deconstructed, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week.